Hey everyone, this is Hannah. If you're a longtime listener, you'll recall the Survivor Story episodes that I would release here and there when Cassie and I had some lag time in between recording our full episodes. So, over the next few weeks, I'm going to be releasing episodes that are somewhat similar to the Survivor Stories, only in that they will be just myself and that they will be on the shorter side. A few weeks ago, I purchased a book that I thought was going to have some more information about a certain case that I was researching, and as it turns out, it only had a page or two with the names of the victims being mentioned in the book. But nonetheless, as I flipped through the pages, I realized that this book had tons of these short but fascinating stories in it. The book is called Ed Gooding, Soldier, Texas Ranger, and is written by Ed Gooding and Robert Neiman. Essentially, these are all accounts from Ed during his time in the military and law enforcement. So, since I'm uncertain when Cassie and I are going to be able to get together again to record full-length episodes, I figured reading some of these short stories would be a fun alternative to not having any episodes at all. Depending on the story's length, some episodes may contain one story, others may have two. I'll now read the inside book jacket, giving a brief overview of who Ed Gooding is, and then I'll begin the story. Ed Gooding has truly had a remarkable life. Born on the shores of the Gulf of Mexico in 1924, he grew up loving Texas and her ways, a love he has never lost. Like most of the men in his age group, Ed went to war during World War II. He served with distinction as a machine gunner from the shores of Normandy in June 1944 to the German surrender 11 months later in May of 1945. After his discharge in 1945, Ed returned to Texas and went to work on a ranch as a cowboy. He credits the solitude, peace, and quiet of those days with saving his sanity from the war. Ed would have been happy spending the rest of his life as a cowboy, but the opportunity came in late 1948 to join the Texas Highway Patrol. He served with distinction in Houston and Baytown in that organization from 1948 to 1957. On May 15, 1957, Ed transferred to the Texas Rangers, thus beginning a career that would span just about every crime known to man. Murder, rape, kidnapping, robbery, and prostitution were part of Ed's daily routine. Those years also brought the anti-war protesters. These were a trial to a man who had served his country with such pride and distinction during World War II. Ed served with the Rangers in Kerrville, Amarillo, and Bell County, where he stayed until his retirement in 1983. Today, Ed lives a quiet life in Cleburne, Texas, enjoying friends and relatives. His beloved wife, Lena, died in 1985. The second murder case in Kerrville happened in 1967 and was exceedingly baffling. One morning, a man was walking his dog near Tyvee Mountain, a prominent hill near Kerrville, when he saw what looked to him like a body in a ravine. As fast as he could, he rushed home and called the police. The sheriff's office called me, asking for my assistance. When the sheriff and I arrived at the murder site, we found the body of a female. She had been rolled down an embankment beside the road and had lodged, face down, in a brush pile. All she had on was a red pajama top. There was what appeared to be a deep scar running diagonally across her face. However, once the funeral home finished preparing the body, this turned out to be something different. It was an indentation where she had been lying on a limb in the brush pile. 
She had been strangled to death with a stocking, and we assumed her killer had to have been a very large man because she was a big woman. If you went by size, she was big enough that she could have taken care of herself, and we believed an autopsy would prove us correct in that she had been raped. None of the deputies, ambulance workers, or anyone from the funeral home had any idea who our Jane Doe was. Once she had been transported to a local funeral home, we issued news releases asking anyone who knew of a missing woman to please come by the funeral home to assist in making a possible identification. The response was good, and several people were able to tell us that the woman was Claudia Mason, a nurse at the local veterans hospital in Kerrville. We secured Miss Mason's address and immediately went to her home. At her house, we found the bottom part of her pajamas, but little else. There was no evidence of forced entry, but that wasn't strange. In those days, people in Kerrville never locked a door or worried about intruders. We questioned everybody in the neighborhood, but drew a blank. We contacted members of the Mason family, but they were not a particularly close family and none had seen Claudia in several years. No one could shed any light on her possessions or who her friends or acquaintances might have been. And after about a month, we ran out our string and put the case on the back burner. In 1972, I had transferred to Amarillo by then. I got a call from Henry Ligon, who had replaced me in Kerrville. Henry said he had cleared the Claudia Mason murder. He had had a case which was almost identical. A girl had been abducted and found on a country road outside of Kerrville. Like my case, all she had on was her pajama top, but there was one huge difference in our cases. Henry's victim had been in terrible shape, but she was alive and knew her assailant. James Woodward. It had taken a while for the victim, Susie Turner, to recover her voice. When she did, she easily identified the man who had kidnapped, raped, and attempted to kill her by strangling her with a piece of seatbelt. She had been incredibly lucky. She had passed out and the man thought she was dead. Otherwise, he would have made sure she was. It turned out that Woodward was a neighbor of Claudia Mason and just a teenager. He was a prominent student at Tyvee High School, and also one heck of a good football player. When my wife, Lena, heard his name, she said she knew his mother and father. They had traded at the store where she worked. Lena said they were good people and this would just kill them. They were always bragging on him and were extraordinarily proud of him. Woodward's father was always talking about his son's football abilities. Henry asked if I wanted to attend the trial. I wanted to, but by the time the trial started, I had transferred to Temple and was up to my ears in half a dozen murder cases. There was no way I could get loose to go. Henry kept me up to date. James Woodward's pattern was to assault his neighbors. His last victim had also been a neighbor. She lived just across the street from the Woodwards. For the attempted murder of Susie Turner, Woodward was sentenced to 50 years, and for the murder of Claudia Mason, he was sentenced to 30 years. Both were to run concurrently. I've said throughout this book that I have looked at death, violent and otherwise, too many times for it to get to me very much. That's true, except for children. I never did get used to that, thank God. In all my years as a Texas Ranger, I never had a case any more tragic than the one I had in November of 1976. 
It started for me on the side of County Road 39, an alternate highway between Colleen and Belton. An elderly couple had been to Colleen to buy groceries. As they turned to go in the gate to their house, the lady saw a bundle in a brown paper sack lying at the side of the driveway. When she and her husband opened the sack, they found the bloody remains of an infant baby boy. I received a call from the Bell County Sheriff's Office asking my assistance. Arriving at the scene, I joined Bell County deputies in the investigation. At the request of the sheriff, I called the Justice of the Peace and asked him if he could join us and hold an inquest, which he did. After that, deputies Bill Miller and Bert Wilkerson carried the child to Dallas for an autopsy. The results indicated the infant had died of massive head injuries. We soon received information that a theft of services complaint had been filed at a local Colleen motel on two men and a woman for running out on their bill. We got this kind of information as a matter of routine, but what made this of particular interest was that an infant child had been with the three individuals. Of course, we had no way of knowing if these were our suspects or not, but I felt like they were. I asked for an APB to be put out on the woman and the two men. A short time later, we received a call from the Austin Police Department that they had arrested Betty Johnson for prostitution. As everyone who was arrested or stopped after the APB went out, she was asked about the motel bill. She had readily admitted that she, her baby boy, and two men, John Lineweber and William Johnson, no relation to Betty Johnson, were the people the motel were looking for. She told the officers where she was to meet Lineweber and Johnson, and the police gathered them up also. She then told the story that they said would freeze a red-hot stove. Even though the Austin Police Department had already filled us in on her story, we had to question her. You have to let the suspect do the telling. Obviously, you can question, but you can't put the answers in their mouths. If you do, a good defense attorney will shove it down your throat in a courtroom. We asked Betty to tell us about Lineweber, Johnson, and her baby. She then related as unbelievable and sickening a story as I ever heard. John Lineweber of Cleveland, Ohio, was the main actor in this morbid affair. He was in the military, stationed in Ohio, and had gone AWOL. Before heading out, he had picked up a buddy, William Johnson. Johnson had brought along his prostitute meal ticket, Betty, and her infant son. They all headed south. They arrived in Colleen in November for no other purpose than to try to stay ahead of the military police. During the trip to Texas, they had abused the infant terribly. The baby was hit, screamed at, neglected, and starved. Instead of nursing the baby, the so-called mother tried to feed him pieces of bologna and water. Clearly, this was not satisfying the child, and he cried most of the trip. The crying got on Lineweber's nerves, and he told Betty that if she was going to stay with them, the baby had to go. She was terrified of being abandoned so far from home, but she needn't have worried. Lineweber and Johnson were living off her prostitution, but she did as she was told. Betty would later self-righteously claim that she wanted the baby to have a good home and would only agree to let Lineweber and Johnson take the infant if they promised they would leave him with someone who would take good care of him. Lineweber, she claimed, agreed that he would make sure and leave the child somewhere that he would never have to want for anything. After taking their meal ticket to the motel, Lineweber and Johnson had gotten rid of the infant boy all right, but not at a good home. They were in a van, and while Johnson drove, Lineweber opened the rear door and held the infant by his heels, letting his head hit the pavement. It took only a few licks to kill him. 
Lineweber wrapped the baby in a blanket and stuffed him in a brown paper bag. Johnson pulled over to the side of the road and they tossed the body by the side of a driveway and kept going. Back at the motel in Colleen, they told Betty that they had left her son on the steps of a large ranch house and that he would have a good home. Wanting to get away from the murder area before the body was discovered, they had all loaded their belongings in their van and headed for Austin. They needed money, and Lineweber and Johnson did what Johnson always did. They put Betty on the street, hooking. But their luck had run out. The first person Betty approached was an undercover policeman, and she was arrested. Detectives had barely started questioning her when she unfolded the whole story. We were contacted, and we immediately went to Austin and brought Betty back to Bell County. When told what had happened to her son, she barely shed a tear. Murder charges were filed on John Lineweber, William Johnson, and Betty Johnson. They were tried and found guilty. Lineweber received a life sentence. William Johnson and Betty Johnson turned state's evidence and received lesser sentences. Lineweber should have fried. He didn't show the least bit of remorse or any sympathy, nor, for that matter, did the other two. Thank you.